Hello and welcome to episode two of the Selvage podcast. I'm Polly Leonard, the founder and editor of Selvage magazine. Our podcast explores the fabric of your life. That's the connection between cloth, culture and creativity. In our series, I'll be interviewing artists, designers, NGOs, cooperatives, collectors and just about anyone who wears clothes to find sustainable textiles that celebrate cultural identity, diversity and the heritage of humanity. Our topic for episode two is plastic. Is it as bad as we think it is? To answer this question, I spoke with a product designer redefining how we look at plastic bottles. For me, as a designer, it was a completely new experience. An Italian designer who combines polyurethane with post-production textile waste. So I start not to see it as a waste anymore, but sort of as a source. And I started to use it. And a Senegalese partnership who bring vibrant African design to a European market. The reward is priceless. Plastic bags invented by Swedish engineer Sven Gustav Tulin were seen as somewhat remarkable. Tulin patented his design in 1965. At the time, he believed that durable plastic bags would have longevity and could replace paper bag production, which caused widespread deforestation, while plastic bags caused more environmental damage than he could have imagined we need to appreciate the value of single-use plastic already in existence. In an article, Bag for Life, the biography of a bag that was published in Selvage issue 78, environmental journalist for The Guardian, Lucy Siegel, flips the situation on its head. Plastic bags are undeniably useful. They can carry two and a half thousand times their weight. So reuse each one extensively hand them down to future generations, turning the fact that a plastic bag might take a thousand years to degrade into a virtue. Give them as presents. The world's remaining plastic bags should become family heirlooms. What's true for bags is also true for plastic bottles. I spoke to designer and innovator Alvero Catalan de Ocon down the line from his home in Barcelona. He began by telling me a bit about the unique properties of this ubiquitous material. Well, plastic bottles are a great invention. They serve their purpose incredibly well. I mean, you can throw a plastic bottle from an airplane and it will not break no, and it keeps the liquid perfectly well. The problem is that it's so durable that the material is not balanced with the actual use you are giving the bottle, which is maybe just some minutes of use versus a um, centuries of life of the material so you're going to be using an object which is going to have a very short life but then it's going to last for a very long time what we are trying to do with the plant project actually is not so much to resolve the problem of the plastic bottles which is way too big for us but to actually create consciousness around that problem before we go on to talk about the baskets which for me are the main pull here let's discuss your lamps they are finished to an incredibly high standard from custom components and gorgeous textile cable to perfect packaging. You have ironed out all of the imperfections that are inherent in a handmade product. Why is it crucial to present your lamps at this level? The reason for actually using crafts and basket making techniques comes from the start of the project, which was actually a brief coming from a museum in Bogota. It was a group of, of artists, uh, landscape designers, architects, trying to 
create consciousness around the problem of the plastic waste in the Amazon River. And uh, working in Colombia, I immediately didn't want to think about working with industry. So that was why I actually started looking at crafts instead of uh, machinery, you know, to transform those bottles into something else. And uh, Colombia is an incredibly rich country with anything to do with handmade materials. For me, as a designer, it was a completely new experience, actually working with that imperfection somehow, but also with all of that knowledge, all of those stories behind that craft, which has been alive for centuries. I, I realized that I was working with something which was extremely rich. Also, I was working with people, not with machines. So I didn't want to come up with a drawing or a rendering, giving it to somebody and saying, this is what I want you to do. That expressiveness of the artisan was starting to come out. They knew much more about colors and patterns than I know. And all of this actually was enriching the product in such a way that I thought it was much better to lose that control on the final object. The concept of creating something that resembles a circular loom is inspired. Where did the inspiration for the idea come from? It started in a very immediate way thinking on the Japanese tea whisk from the ceremony of the tea, which is made out of one piece of bamboo, which is stripped and then woven with a cotton string. And that changes the shape of it. It serves to filter the tea. And if you analyze it in that way, that piece of Bamboo is very similar to a plastic bottle. It has a very strong structural part, which is the one you hold with your hand. And the bottle is a screw with, with a ribbon on it, which is a very good attachment to the top of the bottle, which then serves as a perfect connection between all the electrical components to the lampshade. And then there's the body of the bottle. You can cut into strips and then weave on top of it, which you would change the shape and through the local craft you would give the color and the pattern. So this is the basic circular loom, which is a technique you find practically worldwide. We also thought about what if uh, next year we do another product you know, instead of a lamp, but then we decided, no, let's, let's always make the same typology of object, but in different cultures. So we, we really got into a whole new world. Can you tell me how you made the leap from plastic bottles to basket making? As a product designer, we are not trained to use crafts really, but because of the crisis of the 2008 crisis. Actually, we were, as a designer, very limited to work with industry. And for designers, for the last 10 years, we have been actually looking, in my generation, more towards crafts than industry. You work on annual projects to develop new lamps, each with a different indigenous community. I believe the first one of these was in Colombia. Can you tell me a bit about that project? We worked with two communities from the Cauca region, which is the area of Colombia which has been most strongly hit by the guerrilla. There were these two communities of Guambianos and the Pereras y Apidara artisans. We did some prototypes before arriving there in the studio, but without knowing anything about weaving. As the project evolved, once we were there, the artisans they kind of laughed at us at our prototypes and we realized how much further we could take the project by collaborating with their know-how and their way of doing and giving them that freedom. And it was also at that point which we realized, why don't we, next year, we, we go to another country and try with another technique, with another material, and let's see what happens. Uh, what's very important for us as well is to always keep the workshops going. So the Petland project in Colombia started in 2012, but we are still selling their lamps, which are actually the ones we sell most. And up to the date, we probably have sold around 15,000 lamps. Every workshop is kept alive once we opened it. With each collection, 
the lamps produced are dramatically different and vary depending upon the locally available materials. Bamboo is indigenous to both Thailand and Japan. Can you tell me a bit about how the basketry techniques found in these countries differ and how that affects the character of the lamps? Our main objective is to arrive to a country and obtain characteristical elements of their crafts, no? and that's then been expressed on our project, and that's what makes it a truly collaborative project. It's not our project, it's not our lamps, but it's a lamp which is made through this collaboration, which is, uh, at the end of the day, half ours and half the weavers. Now, we couldn't do them ourselves, and the weavers maybe wouldn't have thought about it if we were not there. So it's a truly collaborative. With, when you work with communities, you encourage the artisans to select the colour and patterns for the lamps. Can you tell me a little bit about the project in Australia? Yes, we, we always want the artisan to get involved in those aspects because we consider that they know more about us and we cannot intervene in those decisions which are in many ways very cultural to their history. It has a meaning to them which we do not want to get involved in. That It would be a lack of respect, I think, to their ways of doing, to their crafts. And in Australia, we found this community up in the Northern Territory, in Arum Land, which makes these big, flat mats. This technique that they do for these mats, they leave part of the, of the fibers on the edge of the mat. So what we arrived to Australia thinking was making a big mat which connected many of those single mats. That was the starting point for us. We didn't really know what shape to give it or how it would evolve, but that was our main interest, to make not just single pieces, but a community piece, which was made by many of the artisans we would, we would be working with and it became a very special piece. In fact, I would say that it's a lamp which doesn't light up the space but rather it lights up to itself. You use moulds to control the shapes of some of your lamps. Despite starting from the same premise, the bottles themselves, you expect the artisans to interpret the pet lamp concept in their indigenous materials, everything from willow and bamboo to elephant grass and palm leaves and leave the design decisions about pattern and colour to the artisan. The process makes every lamp a one-off. It's a risky strategy. I suspect it both facilitates the best work, but also makes quality control challenging. How do you manage the balance? Well, it's true that by leaving those aspects to the artisans, you are risking, you know, you're risking to lose control on the final object, but at the same time, we are gaining the artisan to get involved in the project at a different level. The artisan actually thinks of the lamp as a product which is their product. It's not that they are doing a product for somebody else. That makes him be encouraged to always make another one and another one and another one, each time a better one. And in some way, it even helps us to keep the quality control because then it's their pride which is involved in each one of the products. And it's not us controlling the quality and trying to make all the lamps up to the same quality level, which is, I think, an error you know, when you are working with crafts. You should leave certainly that freedom to the artisan to express himself, because if not, it's like working with a machine which doesn't quite work. And at the same time, for us as a product, it gains much more value because you are actually creating unique pieces, making a series of objects which are all unique, and that has an incredible value as an object. You're listening to The Salvage Podcast, and today we're talking about plastic. My next guest is designer Louisa Chavesi, 
whose studio Redizioni is in Milan, an important centre for the luxury textile industry. Luisa upcycles waste from this industry, salvages and thrumains, and creates a material which traps the scraps inside a translucent polyurethane sheet. From this, she creates one-off bags in simple shapes. Design stores around the world stock her products. She began by telling me a bit about the light bulb moment when plastic entered her imagination as a material with potential. The idea was really a gesture. I just threw, you know, this material, which was silk, because I was working in a silk company, into that, you know, bunch of granules. It was magnificent, it was so pure. And so, and, and I used basically plastic as a unifier. This project was actually the only one that was chosen to be realized for then that exhibition that was held at Triennale and was the only material that they, they, they gave the money to. I basically designed a textile or a material that in that case was very hard and then I decided to make bags. For me a bag is the, is the definition of movement. So it couldn't be hard, it had to be soft, and then we used the, the best, uh, I arrived you know, to the best quality plastic, which is polyurethane, not polluting, and et cetera, et cetera. I would love to learn a little bit about what you look for when you're sourcing post-production and post-consumer waste. So what do we use? We use uh, basically, in our permanent collection, we have yarns, we have, uh, which comes from end cones or end warps. We have selvages, which is the prim primarily the <laughs> textile waste. And then we have, um, it's nice that you have a magazine called selvage. I love it like that. <laughs> and then we have uh, uh, fabrics, which can be, you know, cuts from tailors, which can be end, uh, uh, I mean, end pieces, uh, um, seconds, uh, uh, sampling, uh, whatever. Then, of course, uh, a lot of uh, uh, leftovers and post-production material comes from uh, relationships uh, and just uh, encounters. I have to like it and be moved emotionally, and then uh, I use it. If, when I feel I want to use it, I use it. Encounters, like we all know well, you know, the Emma and uh, uh, from and Kate from Wallace and Sewell, they, at one point they said, we like your work, they sent me a bunch of scraps and they said, if you can use it, we'll be very happy. We were not even talking about, you know, me selling to them or in their stores, you know, they just, they just were very generous in just sending. They say, we think we have this waste and we think you use it well and uh, if you like to use it, we'll be very happy to send it to you. Uh, each Redizio Oni bag is unique. Can you tell me a little bit about how you manage production when the materials are intrinsically inconsistent? Each bag is unique. Each panel first and then bag is unique. Of course, each piece is different. You know, if I get color silk salvages from Mantero, I don't know how much red or which red. You know, they're all mixed. So I have to they will be still inconsistent, but there is a certain consistency which allow me to, to design with them. And then there is a second element, because basically the design is more like a process. Once I give this to the person involved in production, 
that person is free. Because what I think is really quality and what I think is really the, the, probably the best sustainable part of our production is not only the way, use of waste, but is the use of a human being and not as a machine. So they have to enjoy the presence of the moment in order to make it more, to enjoy their work. And the third one is that the machine, heat is involved, you know, the bonding goes through heat. So we cannot control completely, it's like when you bake a cake. You can be good and we improved our <laughs> production quality consistency, but it will never be exactly, exactly the same. So almost like a machine works like as a craftsman. Thank you. How do you keep the costs in check on a one-off product? The, the fact that design should be affordable, I still believe so. And uh, I, uh, that is, was actually the, the reason, once I envisioned through the technology I was using, you know, through this bonding, through polyurethane, and the technology, which is not a high technology, but, uh, but the technology I was using, I envisioned the possibility of a product which had one of a kind product, which could uh, be made in in an easier way than if I had to sew it, or if I had to weave it, or if I had to patch it. And this way I could do it in a much faster way, even if there is a lot of handwork involved, but, but still much, much less. My ideal venue, especially at the beginning, was the contemporary uh, art and design museum stores, because that's where you have a large audience, uh, different age, different anything that could maybe appreciate this. And if they cannot uh, afford maybe a, a big piece, maybe they can afford a small piece, but the same thought is in both of them. You can find out more about Luisa and Redizioni in Salvage Issue 21 and about the exhibition Scraps Fashion Textiles and Creative Reuse, curated by Matilda McQuig, in issue 75. Five or six years ago, I visited Jack Lena Larson's beautiful 16-acre sculpture garden, Longhouse Reserve, in East Hampton, New York, where at the end of an impressive lawn, I discovered two canopied thrones, woven from green and orange plastic strips. I was intrigued. And after taking my place ceremonially under the throne's canopy, I was sold. Here I am years later with Michel-Henri Gelendo, born in Dakar, Senegal, and now living in France. Michel-Henri formed the company Gelen Creations to promote the iconic woven chairs made by Bismarck Yossé, who is originally from Ghana but lives and works in Senegal. We are all familiar with the bent wood and rattan drucker chairs that populate the pavement cafes of Paris and beyond. Rattan replaced long ago by more durable and weatherproof plastic. But Michel Henri, your chairs take the concept to an entirely new level by injecting it with West African energy and craftsmanship. Could you describe the forms your chairs take, starting with the canopied throw I admired at Longhouse Reserve? And tell us a little bit about the origins of the Senegalese names you have given each one of your chairs. To describe the cap-scaring throne, 
it has been designed for a majestic sitting posture. On the top of the throne, we have a cape shape that protects from the sun. That's where comes the name Capskiving, a nice spot situated in the Casamance region in the south side of Senegal. All the designs of our creations are inspired either by nature observations or traditional reinterpretation. And that's also where we find the inspiration for their names. Rather than a bentwood construction, your chairs take shape in a blacksmith's forge. Can you talk a little bit about the two-stage process of construction and how the brightly coloured nylon fishing line used for the plaiting is moulded around the complex form? Well, here also we have three main considerations when making our furniture. The first is our creative artist, Bismarck, who oversees the two teams and prepares the next generation to take over. Then we have the first team, the forge team, that prepares the galvanized metal structure, which brings strength. These team members learn to cut, to bend, and to do weltering, which allows to create the structure of our creations. This part is very important, as it is the basis of the stability of our furniture and decorative creations. Later, we have the braiding team who is busy weaving the fishing nets around the metal structure. All weaving process and patterns do not have the same complexity during the same process. This is also a sensitive part as this is the finishing part that gives the final touch of our creations. The contrasting colours and pulsating weave patterns you employ give the chairs a palpable African feel. What is the origins of the geometric patterns and colours used in the weaving? The patterns are inspired by woven loin clothes present during our traditional ceremonies. Our purpose is to combine tradition and modern aesthetics. We have about 10 patterns and about 20 colors. Can you imagine how many possibilities we can have if we mix colors and patterns? Thousands, even millions personalization possibilities. You can even create mismatched set. This creates uniqueness. We enable people to create the universe that looks like them with our furniture. Although you live in France now, you have a powerful connection to your Senegalese roots and are keen to help stimulate the local economy in Dakar. You quote the African proverb, if you give a man a fish, he will eat for a day. If you teach him to fish, he will always eat. How do you put this proverb into practice? We have so many talented people in Africa and overflowing with creativity, which only ask to be expressed. Gillian Creations have made partnership with a talented artist so that he can transmit his knowledge to younger generations. Now they have independence, they support their families and they prepare the next generation to take over. On your website, you're keen to point out that by buying your products, your customers are helping you to offer remuneration worthy of the skills and efforts of your craftsmen. How many artisans are you able to train and employ? Gideon Creations provides African design furniture and decorative objects, not only for profit, but with social impact by enabling talented artisans to sell their work abroad, to train and hire younger artisans to perpetrate their practice. Since the creation three years ago, we have trained and hired 17 people in difficulty. 
to conclude, I would like to ask anyone listening to this to think about how he or she can do something that is good for his community or his environment. The reward is priceless. if you're looking for some super cool garden furniture look no further to find out more about Jelen Creations see issue 95 of Selvage magazine Alvero, Luisa and Michelle Henri are doing their bit to rewrite the story of plastic as a romance rather than a horror I hope our guests have inspired you to look after and cherish your plastic it really can be fantastic Thank you again to all our guests and to you for listening to the Selvage podcast with me, Polly Leonard. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review and help others to discover it. To learn more about our guests and Selvage magazine, head over to our website and don't forget to subscribe. Be the first to find out about our next episode where we indulge in a high fibre diet. <laughs> <laughs>